Well, this morning we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, and I mentioned this to the pastors, and I think I may have mentioned it in here a little bit. You probably don't, you know, if you're a a decent reader of the Bible, I don't think your normal thought is, wow, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's some some tough sledding, that's some tough passages to get through, but they've been some tough sledding, haven't they, uh, so far? And they're going to be interesting for us again today in a uniquely challenging way this morning. Um, hold on to, I think, as Eric led us in that last song, coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about him. And when I stand and think about how many things I make my life about, How many things my life is dependent upon? How many things I'm waiting to go the right way? How many things I'm sort of in my soul crossing my fingers that it's going to work out in a certain particular way? We make it about a lot of things, right? So when we sing that line, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. It's all about you. Well, this message is going to land really, really hard in that category here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I, as you can see from the very long title and subtitle, I had a hard time falling in love with any one particular way of saying this, but here's what Paul's going to drag us into today. A celebration of the unideal, right? Unideal and the radical scriptures. Remain as you are in a live your dream age, right? That's what we live in. We live in a live your dream age. And then the apostle Paul is going to sound so opposite of that today. When you hear him, you're going to quickly recognize that dude has got no audience today. Nobody wants to hear what he is saying in this passage. And we might, we might read past it really quick. All right, let me give you some common thoughts that you might bump into this week. If you haven't already, this is going to pop up on somebody's post. There are only so many minutes in a day, days in a week, weeks in a year. Time is limited. Don't waste it living someone else's dreams. Follow your intuition. Have the courage to live your dream. Right, somebody's going to post that this week. And you're going to be exposed to reading it. And it's just going to look like normal stuff that we read, right? How about this? This is a different version. As soon as you begin to pursue a dream, your life wakes up and everything has meaning. So just think about the other side of that. Until you figure out what you should be dreaming of and until you pursue that, your life is just sucking wind, right? You're a sad sack to hang around. Ten years from now, make sure you can say you chose your life. You didn't settle for it. Got a lot of homework to do when you leave today, right? Got a lot of good stuff to come up with. It's really critical. One more here. Can't leave. Well, I think I got two more. Can't leave without Oprah. The biggest adventure you can take is to live the life of your dreams. All right. Do we have one more? No, that's it. All right. Yeah, it's always... It's always good to let Oprah have the last word. 
All right, and, and for the sake of me reducing my introduction, I'm, I'm going to read these thoughts that are in your outline here, and I'm going to resist the temptation to chase all of them. So here's a quick thought, right? It's called the American dream, the land of opportunity, the golden age. Some of you who are old enough remember the beer commercials where you were encouraged to grab all the gusto you can. Whoever figured out what gusto was, but you were supposed to be grabbing it. The digital age calls it an upgrade. McDonald's calls it supersizing. Paul Tripp in his book calls it the quest for more. Without any official notice or clear moment of decision on our part, this stuff seeps into our motivational DNA. And the next thing we know, we are all caught up in the all-consuming quest to get ahead, to dream big, to achieve, to have it all. Right? That's what our culture feels like. That's what popular thinking feels like. That's what motivational speaking feels like. When you gather an audience, if you want to keep that audience, if you're going to publish something, if you're going to sell books, if you're going to get on the radio, if you're going to be on TV, and you want people to, to hear something that they like to hear, You're going to have to tap into this thought, encourage them to dream big, to own their dream, to pursue it at all costs, to live it to the max, etc. So question, is that wrong? Is it wrong to, to want to be an achiever? You want to achieve something? You want to go for something in your life? Is that wrong? I mean, is the alternative to that living lives that got no real big goals? We're just steering towards a whole lot of nothing. We're just here occupying space. No big deal for us. So is it, is it wrong? Is it wrong to dream big? Is it, is it wrong to, to have dreams and dream big? Quite simply, No. That's not wrong at all. God has given us that capacity. That operates in us. There is something intrinsically in the human nature that longs for something big and important and hard to reach, but worth going after, worth sacrificing for, worth giving it all up. There's something in us that's designed for a life that feels that way. So no, it's it's not wrong. However... This would, this would be my, my massive beef with the, the motivational world. And the motivational world, you know, there's, there's two different dimensions to the motivational world. There is the motivational world that's in secular publishing. There's, and and that, that crept into the church in the 1980s, 1990s, and still there. So trying to tap into what's the audience want to hear? What's going to get you guys moving? So the motivational world which traffics quite a bit in sort of prosperity teachings, promise, have faith. So the faith movement kind of gets some of this wrapped up in it. Okay, here is my massive beef with that in the body of Christ, right? I'm going to resist and just read. Their message and words and attitude are injected into the hearts of people without regard For their spiritual orientation, their spiritual maturity, and their kingdom-mindedness. I'm just hawking a message to a bunch of people. I don't even know where you're at. I don't know what you're centered on. 
I don't know what you get up in the morning and live for. I don't know what you're dying for and that way you use your money and your time, what your priorities are, what kingdom you even want to see come in this world. I don't even know that. But I'm just telling you how to unlock the keys to more. As a pastor, can I just say to everybody who will ever speak to another human being, you are reckless if you do that to people. You don't even know what I'm about. You don't know what God I'm serving. You don't know what appetite I have. You don't know who I'll run over, stab in the back, and go after next for the sake of my priorities and my dream. And then I'm just teaching you some techniques on how to get that, that I pull from Scripture. Okay. They steal kingdom comments and make them untethered, generic motivators that anyone can use for whatever they personally want. And so like immature children, we take those ideas and we run towards cars and candy. Cars and candy. God, just fill my world with cars and candy. I'm so glad I've learned how to pray and how to live in the kingdom so I can have cars and candy. And that's, that's, about, all, that's about all the priorities that, that some people have going on in their life. And worse than that, when this gets taught to you, It won't be long before the God of glory in the universe goes on trial in your heart. Because you can't seem to get this God to show up in the categories that are your priorities. To get him to help you flourish in the places that matter to you the most. How frustrating is that? How tempting is it to believe that this God really doesn't love you as you thought he did he's not faithful can you imagine the character of the god of eternity goes on trial in our hearts over cars and candy in our own dream my own dream mentality can you say just you know pay attention a little bit to human history here do you know your grandparents weren't like this my, my dad was about as old as most of your grandparents. He was born in 1918, which means when he was 12 years old, the Great Depression kicked in with all of its force. And so my dad grew up telling me stories about at 12 years old, he had to go out and get a job to help support his family. Came home every night. Dinner was flour and water pancakes over and over and over again. Now, if you trace out the Great Depression, which our, our, our generations have known nothing like this. The, the, the depressions, the economic downturns that we've lived through, they're speed bumps. They take about 18 months to play out, and then they suddenly turn around, and they get to build back up, and the stock market goes back to where it was before it all happened, and prices go back, and things just return to prosperity, good, ease, etc. But that, that wasn't the story in, in 1930. Remember that World War II was almost a strategic means of pulling us out of this economic downturn. And that was going to take years to play out. So my dad would, would have gone from about 12 years old to almost about 30 years old before life began to return to some kind of sense of normalcy. And then that generation was going to build a life. Right, The post-World War II generation was going to build a life. And some of what they built is still available to us today. Some of us uh, inhabited the homes that they built. 
all 1,200 square feet to 2,000 square feet of them, where they raised four, five, and six children in these homes that to us are starter homes, that we are miserable until we can move on from them to something that's got the latest of everything, the shiniest of everything, and a bigger version of it all. You understand? I'm not even quoting from the Bible here. There were people a couple of generations removed from us that were much happier than we are, with a lot less. And every morning you get introduced to the idea that your dream is too small. You should want more. I'm gonna I'm gonna join the Apostle Paul today, and I'm gonna raise the question of how about being really happy with what we've got. Radical thought, right? So, in your notes there, no, it isn't wrong to be a dreamer or achiever or a person with ambitions. But it is wrong to be a malcontent. To possess citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God. To have direct access to and experience of the presence of God. To have received the eternal hope of all hopes. To have the wealthy, abundant, overflowing down payment of the Holy Spirit in our possession. And yet to be unhappy and desperate for something else to fix us. Something really, really wrong with that. And you're going to hear the Apostle Paul interact with that in an interesting way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now my question before I read from the Apostle Paul is... Could you have been pastored by the Apostle Paul if this is what his Sunday messages sounded like? See, in the first century, you kind of didn't have that uh, massive shopper mall church world that you have today. Right? So... If, if we were to listen to the Apostle Paul and, and listen, the Corinthians were sort of American-ish. We've picked that up quite a bit as we've studied them, right? They, they were a pretty prosperous place. Their, their city was a wealthy city. They, they were afforded a lot of opportunity. They were at crossroads. There was a port city, a mixture of people. It was a Roman colony. Money was being invested there. They had a good economy. They were kind of Americanish. They they began to want life to have these designer features to them, kind of the way we do. And here comes the Apostle Paul going to preach a Sunday message. He's going to show up in this category. See, today, if you show up and the Apostle Paul wants to preach this kind of stuff, I I think next week I'll just go somewhere else to church. Because that's kind of not what I want to hear. Well, my question to you is who taught you to listen for what you're listening for? Slide things? Facebook quotes? Here's how we get to this point in this chapter. Just last week we talked about Paul interacting with troubled marriages, difficult marriages. Marriages where people wanted out of them. Husbands that were seeking divorces, wives seeking to separate. People asking questions about when can I get out of this thing? Right, so an unpreferential world exists in the marriage category that has given birth to the subject of, hey, how do you live in unideal settings? What's going to enable you to live in places of your life that are not your preference? It's not going the way you would have liked for it to go. All right, stop. Did I just describe anybody's world? Go on, seriously, show me your hands. 
Do you have anything on preferential? You guys are, people are dead. Seriously, you got nothing on preferential in your world right now. Okay, so when you go home, just smile the whole ride home. Honey, I can't wait to get home to the life that we have. It's so spectacular. Kids, isn't it wonderful every day? Is this how you sound? (laughs) There's stuff in our life that we don't like. That we'd prefer not to have. Now listen. The, the dream hawkers show up and say. Well just dream beyond that. Just almost live in denial. Just dream a dream. I'm not telling you to dream a dream. I'm telling you face reality. There are places in your life you don't like. That's not going away. Why don't you love coming to church here? <laughs> so positive and reinforcing. Bible's not calling you to ignore the fact that you live in a fallen world with a fallen body and your mind goes into places that are hard to recover from and you get depressed and discouraged about stuff and you don't like things and settings and time frames and people that are in your life and you'd love a refund on a bunch of things going on right now. The Bible doesn't say deny those things. You have to have a way to face them. And so there's stuff in all of our world that the Apostle Paul is going to unpack some perspective here that is really, really, really important and helpful. So, let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's start in verse 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Well, do not be concerned about it. You can gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ is, is a bondservant of Christ. So, listen, whether you are a physical slave, you are called by Christ, you are called in this massively redefining relationship with God, redefining everything. But if you were free, and you weren't a slave... You were called in a relationship with God. That's kind of like slavery. You now belong to him. He now has taken possession of your whole life. So Paul says, hey, it doesn't matter where you slap the slavery title. Because before, after, all of us who are in Christ, we are, we are slaves. We belong to Christ. He's the one calling the shots. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there, let him remain with God. Right? This, is, this is radical thinking. Do you, do you understand? That's an easy thing to read real quick until you put yourself in their position. What if you don't like your address when you were called to God? What if it's not your preference? What if you'd like to shake some of the people that are in your world so you could improve it and do a little upgrade action? What if you'd like to live somewhere else? What if you'd like a different style of life? What if you'd just like to make some more money? Is there anything wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. 
Except Paul makes room for that to be okay, to be your future. Anybody okay with that? That's a radical concept today, right? This, is, this, is, this first starts with a radical set of words. Verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. Those are verses worth meditating on and memorizing. Because you, you have competing concepts here. When you open your Facebook page tomorrow, I, I want you to bump into these competing concepts. Somebody's going to come along and say, don't you let anybody tell you not to live your dream. And then you're going to hear the Apostle Paul's voice saying, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Does that anybody include God? Don't even let God tell you to lead the life he has assigned to you? And remember the context here. This is not Paul hanging out with some Corinthians on the French Riviera. This is a, this is a chapter full of trouble. Where the Apostle Paul turns around and says, hey... Live the life, live it, the life that God assigned for you, which may have some non-preferential, non-personal dream items in it. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, said, under the theme of call, Paul seeks to put their spirituality into a radically different perspective. They should remain in whatever social setting they were at the time of their call. Since God's call to be in Christ transcends such settings so as to make them essentially irrelevant. All these, oh, I've got to fix my life in all the right categories, make it all the right things. And Paul turns around and says, chill. This stuff's irrelevant. Something much bigger is on the scene. That is the call to Christ has created such a change in one's essential relationship with God That one does not need to seek change in other relationships with people. Is this the most radical, crazy stuff you've ever heard lately? Because I I get around people and it feels like, oh, no, 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 no. If my life has any future or hope, I'm going to have to change some of the people in it. (laughs) I can't keep up with the people that are currently in the picture frame with me right now. These latter are transformed and given new meaning by the former. Thus, one is no better off in one condition than in the other. To make this point, Paul illustrates from two other kinds of social settings, circumcision and slavery. And I'll unpack that in just a second. But here's a thought. Hold on to this. Paul shifts these other categories of life into secondary positions where they no longer carry the same weight to determine one's happiness and self-definition. When God is in his rightful place in our hearts, it changes the way we need everyone and everything else. That's just a reality that, that when you find yourself needing things to the point that you become aggressive... Fearful, freaked out, manipulative. You are very convinced that you have a need that you're going to suffocate. You're being held underwater right now, and you need air. And if this doesn't change, you're going to you're panicking. You're freaking out on people. 
you're hard to be around, etc. If that's what your life feels like, that phrase right there needs to be something you meditate on. When God is in his rightful place in our hearts, it changes the way we need everyone and everything else. There is something about God showing up on the scene of the soul of man that changes everything about how we see life, how we do life, our hope in this world, what brings us peace, what brings us joy, what does and does not need to be perfect and ideal. This reality changes everything. Paul turns around and applies this in some really practical areas of their life. He mentions first circumcision. Right, without going into a lot of detail, remember circumcision was the, the right, the practice of the Jewish people. So you had a community within Corinth who were Jewish by background. That, that you know, Circumcision is both a religious issue in this setting and in some churches in the New Testament, in the Galatians, uh, Paul's going to make a similar argument to this to the Galatians because a little bit of social status amongst the religious was associated with circumcision. It's like, yeah, you could be a, a Gentile, come to know the one true living God, but if you really want to be in the inner circle with this God, you need to be circumcised because that's how God's chosen people. That's, that's the rights that they followed, and you're going to have to embrace some of that too. So there was a sense of status amongst Religious settings, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not taking the time to unpack this fully, but just think, there are certain things in this church right now that if you do or you are or you behave a certain way, for certain people, you gain status in their eyes. Is everybody aware of that? I'm sorry that it's that way, but I hate that it's that way. But it's a reality. We have our own little versions of circumcision that if you behave a certain way, then you're in the inner circle of Christianity. You're really spiritual and I have a different respect for you and some people can come to the church and live year after year chasing the circumcision label it's like oh am I am I do I fit do you approve of me do you think highly of me am I one of those people and well Paul says hey you know whether you are or whether you're not lighten up doesn't matter now this was bigger than that for them because If you were of the circumcision, you were of the Jewish people, there was a network of relationships that came with that. Remember, remember they lived in a patron system, so you needed to be well-connected if you wanted your family and your life to go well. You needed somebody who would protect you, keep you from being taken advantage of. You need somebody with some power to do that. You need somebody to provide jobs for you. You need to get plugged into the right people. So being identified with the circumcision group could get you plugged into the right people. And then again, it might not. So Paul says, hey, whether you are or you're not, whether you think your future's in the hand of some patron somewhere, that's not what matters. There's something else here that's more important than that. He mentions bondservant here. And it's a staggering thought in this. You know, you could become a bondservant in a number of ways. You, you, you could be related to the wrong people and kind of been born into slavery type status in, in the culture. Uh, the Romans could have taken over wherever you were from, brought you back to a Roman colony, and you lived the rest of your days out there as a servant to a, a Roman citizen because you were taken as a prisoner of war, essentially, and that became your status. You could have got yourself into some severe debt, and the only answer was for you to sell your life to someone else, and you became their servant. 
And so through whatever means, your freedoms were extremely limited and bound to another person's decisions and will if you were a bondservant. Paul has these people in the church, right? As a matter of fact, in Corinth, about a third of the people in Corinth would probably have been slaves. So typically, maybe half the church was people in this condition. Now, can you imagine how unpopular of a Facebook post this is? Whether you can go free or whether you can't, don't sweat it, no big deal. Oh, that's easy for you to say, Paul, you're a Roman citizen. You get all the benefits of this, 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 and this. And you're going to tell me to go ahead and just stay in my slave-type conditions. And you're cool with that. This is not a popular thing to say at all. But there's something bigger in the room here. There's something of a... An understanding of the nature of one's life. And and Paul features this bond servant element when he says, you know, here's what happens. And I said this earlier. You're you're a slave and you come into a relationship with Christ and he sets you free. He sets captives free, right? And he's a liberator. So you have this new life now that's not bound to sin. You're not under the authority and the power of the devil and of sin and the principalities of this world. You have escaped their authority. You are a freed man in Christ. So it's interesting to the slave in one condition, Paul says, oh, pay attention to the freedom that you have. But then to the free person, the guy who's not a slave, the guy who's an owner, a mover and a shaker, a Roman citizen, he's got some power. To that guy, Paul turns around and says, oh, by the way, you're a slave. You think you kind of call the shots, do what you want with your life. But you know, when you get saved, you stop being the boss. And you don't own anything. Kind of like that guy who works for you as a slave. He doesn't do anything without your permission, your guidance, your priorities. Oh, by the way, that's what you became when you became a Christian. That's what Paul is saying right here. So he says, you know, in some way, every one of us is on equal footing. There's not a one of us as a Christian who's calling shots for our own life. Not a one. Whether you got a lot of money in your bank account or nothing. Whether you're a freed person or a slave. Whether you're male or female. This same argument is going to come up in Galatians as well. You'll remember that. This status doesn't matter. Oh, but the culture makes it matter. Like your whole future and your hope depends on getting this category right. Gordon Fee says, likewise, the person who is free when called is Christ's slave. The implied imperative would go something like this. Were you a free person when called? Don't let that be a matter of importance to you. Why not? Because the free person who's been called to be in fellowship with Christ is in fact Christ's slave. That is, even though such people too have been set free in Christ, they have come into a relationship with Christ that can best be described by the metaphor of slavery. Our calling has eliminated the option of belonging to ourselves. We belong to another, to Christ. How many of us are are awakening in our lives with the idea not of get out of my way so I can get my agenda accomplished? How many of us wake up every day with the thought, my life is not my own, it's yours. And what do you want from me today? Where am I going? Who am I dealing with? What have you called me to do with my life? See, that, that's the appropriate thing that a slave does. He looks to another to tell him what life he's going to live. 
And that's the metaphor used to describe us as Christians. So Paul says, listen, we're all in that boat. And then he picks up in verse 25. He picks up, what about, what about betrothed, unmarried people? Now, concerning the betrothed, look at verse 25 with me. I have no command from the Lord, but, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, do not seek a wife. And then he turns around next and he's going to draw the, the widows into this equation, right? So you got people who are in unmarried conditions. And unmarried conditions brought all kinds of unpreferable elements to it. If you're a woman, you were unmarried. It, it puts you in danger in some ways. Your protection was down. Your ability to provide for yourself was going to be challenging. If you're a man, you just might have longings, desires. You know, The whole companionship reality for human beings is in this equation. But Paul turns around to that person and says, hey, no big deal. Married or not. This is what this guy is saying to them. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier. Happier? Happier. If she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Happier? I want to be married, Paul. What are you talking about? Well, I I think in light of what I'm talking about. Well, Paul, I'm not thinking in light of what you're talking about. And I'm not happy. Well, can I get you to think about this a little bit? That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, can I bring something into the unhappiness, the unpreferred life... That might change how you feel about your life. And that's what Paul brings to them. Remember, Paul shifts these other categories of life into secondary positions. Where they no longer carry the same weight to determine one's happiness and self-definition. Right? Paul is taking stuff with big status, giant necessities. Oh my gosh, it's got to go some way. It, it, it's got to be ideal. This is not ideal. I need to get rid of this. I need to get rid of that person. I need to change these things in my life because these things are so critical. And Paul deprioritizes these. He grabs them out of the air and says, I know you were thinking this would fix you, this would fix you, this would fix you, this would fix you. But let me deprioritize all of these and say they, they really don't matter. In light of something else bigger. John Piper says, when you are called into the fellowship of Christ, you gain a new set of radically Christ-centered priorities. So much so, so that if you're a slave, it should not cause you to fret. Were you a slave when called? Never mind. Is yours a menial job? Well, never mind. Is it a job that is not esteemed as highly as other professions? Never mind. This is the same point he was making with cultural differences like circumcision. Were you uncircumcised? Never mind. Were you circumcised? Don't worry about it. Really? Don't worry about it? Yeah. Yeah, he's serious here. Don't don't worry about this. There's something operating in Paul's understanding about how to do life and how to create priorities. That causes other things to not become so life-defining and critical and choking of our joy and our happiness in this life. 
Look at verse 28. Paul's going to offer some kingdom commentary here. This is how he's going to support the idea that, hey, don't sweat these things. Verse 28. But if you do marry, right? You're free to marry, not to marry. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There is a ruling giant principle right there. Paul, why are you saying all this? Because the healthiest life you can possibly live is an undivided devotion to the Lord. And where that falls apart, everything else becomes problematic. There's a lot of little implications and things to unpack here. Remember, Paul is not an anti-marriage guy. He teaches about the glories of marriage and the wonderfulness of marriage. But he states something here that nobody should ignore. He states that if you get married, then your interests, your energies, your mental focus, your capacity is going to become somewhat divided. Fact of life. I mean, most of you guys know this. If you've been married and you've added children to your life, did you notice you didn't get any more time added to your day? It took us a while to figure this out. That's why we had seven kids. We kept thinking, well, time's coming in the mail. You know, we're going to get an extra hour each day for the kids. It's not, you know, this isn't like social security. It doesn't do that. So you add these complex things that we're called to be responsible to. It divides your interest. You are not just about one thing anymore. That's just, that's just legit. If you're a husband or a wife, there is, there is a place carved out for energy and devotion and care for the person you are married to. It's appropriate. It's part of the calling that you have. However, when you go to do that, you will pull yourself from other things to do it. And Paul says, better if you could just be single-minded and focused for the times that we live in right now, oh, the kingdom, the kingdom needs your attention. Now, now listen, a little side shoot here. Right, Paul, please notice in here, Paul is not doing much of a good job of arguing for your personal preferences here. Have you noticed that? That's not coming up. The kingdom is coming up in a big way. I'll, I'll share more about that in a second. But here's a reality as well. If you get married, Paul says... 
Part of you is going to be devoted to this in a way. It's going to require something of you. It's going to interfere with your life in such a way that it's going to interfere with the kingdom activity of your life. How many of you know that if you get married, that same exact thing is going to be true about your personal hobbies and interests as well? It's just going to come with the territory. That's going to interfere with, you know, always loved sports or I'm just a workaholic or I just, you know, my life is about these things. Well, you know, if you marry another person, they rightfully interfere with that. And if you're not willing to have your personal preferences interfered with, who marriage is really, really not for you. Because it's, it's rightfully going to interfere with that. It might change your career. It might redefine something about your life. It might notch some things back a little bit. It might slow you down. You can't keep the pace you want to pay. Because you're taking interest in another person, rightfully so. So listen, I know this doesn't fit in our world of your preferences should rule and don't let anybody tell you not to live your dream. Including your spouse. When your spouse says, hey, I'm not really liking your dream. It's dragging me backwards and upside down through life. And it doesn't pay attention to anything about me. And I just feel hurt and neglected by it. Do you hear me? No. I heard the guy say, don't let anybody wreck your dream. I heard him loud and clear. You, I'm having a hard time hearing. Listen, this stuff, this stuff, I'm being very self-controlled right now. Because this is the enchanted stuff I brought up about two years ago. This is the stuff that's like lead poisoning. It gets in your veins and it starts making you think, well, that's how it's supposed to feel. Christians feel like this is how it's supposed to feel. It is so upside down, so unbiblical. You are following a savior who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Traveled on his way with his life saying no to all kinds of opportunity for personal dreams. Listen, personal dreams, stay in heaven. Sit on the throne, gather all of creation around you, let them worship you morning, noon, and night. Don't put on a human body, walk around on earth, eat junk, go hungry, be ridiculed, and then have nails driven through your hands and be crucified. Don't do that. Because that's totally being done, not for self-interest. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. When did we start thinking that our lives wouldn't have some of these characteristics to them? Please, when you see these quotes come up, please laugh hysterically at them. They are so out of bounds. You are called, verse 17, to live the life that God has assigned to you. It might be in your favorite category and it might not. It might make you feel all warm and fluffy. And it might make you feel ice cold on your way to glorifying God through something that is so difficult to do. I don't think there was a long line for that. Hey, anybody want to be born blind from birth just for the sake of glorifying God? I'm just saying they weren't lining up for that. Oh, me. Yeah. But that was a person's life for reasons that might escape us. I don't think there was a long line for the Lazarus deal. Who would like to be dead 
and stink for a few days, just running the risk that maybe the Son of God will come and raise you from the dead. Oh, oh, pick me. Nobody's reading a book that says dream, dream of dying and stinking. No one's dreaming that way. But yet here comes God saying, hey, here's the life I assigned to you, Lazarus. So that I may do something glorious that people will talk about forever and will bring attention to me and who I am. One of the first Bible verses that I probably was encouraged to memorize was Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I know we don't memorize Bible verses too much anymore. But this verse was always so rescuing and helpful. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these others will be added to you. Right? Do you remember the context? Jesus is explaining, you're anxious about all kinds of things. You're freaking out about all the stuff that you need to have in your life. Your father knows what you need. Chill. This is what Jesus is saying to them in Matthew chapter 6. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 7. The same thing. You're so worried about all these things. You're making your life and your future contingent upon all these things that you're trying to figure out, manipulate, and make happen. Chill. Just relax, will you? God knows what you need. Live the life that he's given you. I think I wrote this in your outline. And you know, until you get these kingdom revelations, you're not ready to use the kingdom credit card. Prosperity teachers. Don't just be doling out credit cards. Here is the kingdom card. Go, use it. Are you saved? Yeah, okay. Not sure? Well, let's pray a quick prayer and then you can use it. Uh, it's like, uh... You might want to get some of these. This is how this plays out, right? James chapter 4, living reality. This is where life goes when your heart is out of step with God. And, and it can't embrace the things that God has, right? And this is, this is one of the most practical verses in all the Bible. But it lives in this topic that Paul is describing. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so think of your life when it gets into the category of characterized by quarrels, fights, conflicts, at odds with each other, gut-wrenching stuff of broken relationships that used to work, now they don't work. What, what made them stop working? When did we become enemies? Is it not this, that your passions are at war Within you, I'm, I'm, uh, dreams are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen, some of us just live life fighting and quarreling, fighting and quarreling. It becomes characteristic of who we are. Do you ever stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why is the best question available to us? Why are we fighting right now? Why are we in such conflict? Why am I responding this way? Why am I so angry? Why? Well, this verse is helping us understand. You want something that you can't get. 
So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I just don't understand if you're a prosperity teacher, did you read that verse? Have you told people that verse is in the Bible? That before you go using the kingdom credit card, you might want to check and see. Is this person about to ask wrongly in order to spend it on what makes their life make sense to them? With whatever value system is floating around inside of them. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What, What is that about? Well, it's about the wrong asking and the wrong seeking that's getting birthed out of competing priorities. Something about the world has sold itself to me and I've become friends with it. And I want that. And that makes sense to me. And I need to have that or my life can't possibly be a good life or a happy life. And we get loyal to that kind of thing and we ask and we ask and we ask and God won't give and God won't give and then we get mad. We don't want anything to do with God and we haven't read our Bibles in months. But this explains why we do that. Because there is misplaced desires inside of us that are controlling our prayers, our desires, our longings. Verse 6. But, God, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. You sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. In this context, having heard about these fights and contentions and unhappiness that's inside of the people in this passage, what does that mean to humble yourselves? Well, I want to take you back to that verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what I think it looks like to humble myself before the Lord. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Stop bringing self-insistence and my pride and my arrogance that I know better than God into a conversation with him where I demand that he do what I say he should be doing. No, 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 no. Humble yourself and let God say, I have assigned a life to you. Receive it from me and live that life. Right, so this is, this is the, the real humility moment. The real humility moment is when I turn to God and I surrender and I say, I will. With all of its unpreferential features, with all of its difficulty, with, with some of these things not looking like they can ever resolve, I will live the life that you, I humbly receive from you, my king and my master, the life you have chosen for me. Listen, you had to be able to do that to live in Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
These were not preferential moments for them. They were difficult settings for them. This is, this is not a small thing. You know, when you and I all show up in the kingdom of God, God, by his grace, goes out and finds us. You know, it's, it's almost as though God is building an orchestra that sticks out because I, I have orchestra children. God's building an orchestra. He goes out and grabs a bunch of instruments, a bunch of pieces, and pulls them all together into the same room. And if you've ever been to hear an orchestra, you'll know something really, really critical happens right at the beginning of the orchestra uh, production. It's critical. It'll make the difference between you being impressed and, and you thinking, why did I waste all that money to come to this thing? It's that little moment when a single instrument plays a single note and it sounds like somebody let cats out of a bag. Everybody starts... And they do that for a couple of seconds and then they stop and then a single note again. And then they all do it again. You know what they're doing right there? They're tuning themselves to one thing. So that when that conductor now comes and bangs his little stick and they all join in, you know why it sounds so good? Because they're all tuned to the same thing. Yeah, ever children's orchestras are really good at this because you know they're children and they don't know how to tune real well, and so quite often they sound a little off, screechy, and sometimes just plain awful. See, what you can't do in the kingdom of God is you can't take everybody who's tuned their instruments to their own settings and their own way of doing things, their own outlook, their own style, their own preference. They like the way that sounds. That's good for them. Invite them all together. And then the orchestra leader, Jesus Christ, stands up and says, let's all play. That sounds horrible. See, God has to undo your tuning, your self-tuning, and replace it with being tuned to him. And that's what Paul's teaching here. It's like everybody finds their favorite category. They want to create their life. They want to, they want to make their life a certain thing. They want to tune their life to that, and they put their hope in that. And, and listen, you could be here this morning in that place. There could be some really, really critical, important categories for you that, that a lot's riding on that category. A lot of hope, a lot of joy, a lot of future is riding on that category. And yet this morning, God wants you to ponder something. Are, are, are you living the life God has assigned to you? Are you willing to give <clears throat> that life the value that it deserves Not the preferential version of your life that you keep waiting for or hoping for or complaining about. But the one God has given you with all of its brokenness and its limitations and its opportunities. All right, so in these categories, some here this morning are single. Some are childless. Some are divorced. Some are in some really hard marriages. Some have been for a long time in some really hard marriages. Economic conditions, health issues, 
that make up the life that you're living right now with all of its difficulty. Did you ever think that maybe God could and would call you to a life that's hard? It just feels hard in a lot of ways. You know what hard does for me? Hard makes me value faith a lot. Because faith reaches outside of my difficulties for something I don't have. And and I've just noticed this about myself. The easier life gets, the less I reach. But when it gets really hard and it gets over my head, I, I find myself in faith reaching for God. God, you've got to show up. God, you've got to provide. God, you've got to be my hope. God, you are the source of my joy. Eric, you can come back up. Let me finish with this thought from John Piper. He says, the upshot of this is that whether a person is a slave or a freedman, it ought not be the cause of his despair or his pride. He ought to be able to say, never mind. He ought not to boast if he is a doctor or a lawyer or executive. And he ought not to be self-pitying or depressed if he has a job that society esteems less highly. So, brethren, Paul concludes in verse 24, in whatever state each was called, let him remain with God. With God. There's the crucial phrase. What matters in life and in eternal life is staying close to God and enjoying His presence. What matters is not whether our job is high or low in man's eyes. What matters is whether we are being encouraged and humbled by the presence of God. I think your last line there says, For a Christian, the starting block of the adventurous life of a believer is their conversion. It is not waiting on or for your preferred status or achievement or dream to kick in. That's why some of these quotes should make you throw up. Rather than go, oh, let me post that too. The idea for a Christian that when you finally discover your dream, meaning will awaken inside of you. Really? That's like discovering something that weighs an ounce and overlooking something that weighs four tons. When the God of the universe restored his life to you, life began. What an adventure began of experiencing the nearness, the promise, the presence, the work of God on our behalf in us for the rest of eternity. There's something really wrong with us if we've got that, but we wake up day after day miserable because I don't have that. And I don't have that. And look at that person over there has that. Why can't I have that? And we just live daily in an argument with God. About what we're not, who we're not, what we don't have, what somebody else does have. The difficulties that we have. This this verse, it's one verse. Powerful. 
Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. God wants to be near to you, right? Verse 24, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You you may be here this morning in a really unpreferential situation in your life. But as a believer, when God came to you and found you, you are now with God. Do not let these secondary matters crowd that reality out and turn it into nothing. Like, yeah, I've got God, but you don't understand. Isn't that the language that we use? And we scream, yeah, well, that's nice to say, but God's not enough. God's not sufficient. God can't make me happy. We don't really believe that, do we? Of course God can. He can meet us in ways that are life-giving. Our soul longs for the living God. It doesn't long for some personal dream. Your personal dreams, one, good luck finding your personal dream. You sure you know what you're supposed to be doing? You sure you know who the ultimate person is you're supposed to be married to? There's a lot of options out there. You sure you're in the right career? You sure you're using your talent the right way? I mean, I know you're you're trying. You're doing what you can. Have you really thought this stuff through? The the one dream is a dream that a creature who was made by his creator could be restored to the living God. Reconciled, brought near, and indwelt by life itself. Want to live a dream? Live that dream. Let's stand up together. Lord, these are words preserved by you, given by the Holy Spirit into the setting that you brought the Apostle Paul so many years ago. But Lord, these these words, this chapter, it's telling our story too. Lord, I would dare say that for too many of us, this was not a happy week. recently has not been a happy time God if we stared into our lives the only explanation seems to be there's some things that we don't like or there's some stuff that's missing something I don't have that I really really want I dreamed of and hoped for and I'm disappointed or I got something and it turned out to not fix me I'm still still not happy oh God your creation cannot fix your creatures only the creator can do that God this is this is hard to face but it's good news Lord this is good news
So I want to talk to two groups here this morning. If you know you're a Christian, you know you have reached out and received from God his own life. You've turned to him through Christ at some point, and you know that. I'm going to talk to you in just a moment. If you're here today and that's not your story, your story isn't that you have come to this moment in your life where you recognized that Jesus Christ did something in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection. That was meant to restore us to God. And maybe you didn't even realize you needed to be restored to God. But clearly that's what the Bible teaches. And sometimes our life feels out of sorts because of that. Because we haven't yet been reunited with God. We're trying to fill up every day and every relationship with some ultimate thing that's going to reset us, fix us on the inside. Listen, the God of the universe says he's the only one who can fix you. Because what's broken is the fact that he's missing at the very center of who you are. And that's why Jesus Christ came. You want to understand the Bible, it's a story about God doing the one thing that had to happen in order to restore people to himself. That's what Jesus Christ did. He provides a way for you to come back to God. And if you've never come to a place where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, where you surrender your life to him and you receive God himself to come and dwell in you, he will do that. That's God's plan. If you've never done that, I want want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. You do it by prayer. You do it by receiving something from God by faith. So if you're here this morning and and you want to do that, there's something in you this morning that's saying, I I know I need that. That's what, I think that's what's missing for me. And I want to do that this morning. Let's let's all bow our heads. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pray some words that you can pick up and make your own words to God. You can ask God to give you his life this morning. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I understand that you came so that you could restore me to God. And I see I need to be restored. My life needs more than what I have. And I know I haven't done it all right. And God, I'm sure at some points I have offended you. Lord, this morning I apologize to you. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I come to you because Jesus Christ did something for me that I could never do for myself. He made a way for me to come. He lived a life I couldn't live so that I could have access to you. And this morning, God, I take up that access and I come with my life, with my needs, with my brokenness. And I ask you to come. Take my life, Lord. I give it to you. Don't hold it back. I give it to you this morning. I want to receive your life. Would you come fill my life? Would you come dwell in me and lead me now from this day forward 
Lead me into the life that you have assigned to me. The life you have chosen for me. I want that life, God. And I received that life from you this morning. Maybe you're here and you've prayed a prayer like that many years ago, months ago. You've done that before and, and, and God is in your life. But just like these Corinthians, other stuff is in your life too. And those things have become the linchpins. Those things have become the deal killers. Those things are the things that you are beginning to base your happiness, your future, your joy on those things. And you know what those things are. Maybe nobody else does. Or maybe everybody else around you knows exactly what they are. And they could be like the Corinthians categories. They, they could be singleness and marriage. Children or not. Status among others. The type of job that you have. Like it could be very similar categories that these guys had. But all you know is you're here this morning... And if you're honest with God, you, you, you don't like the life you have. I know that's a hard thing to say. But it's okay to own that. But it's not okay to stay there. Because to not like something that God has assigned to you is to call into question the assigner. The one who is watching over every hair on your head. The one who has planned every day of your life. He is involved in the life that you have. He has given you the life that you have. So here's what I think God wants maybe some of us to have the courage to do this morning. Is the courage to be all in. To be all in. Not with the life that you wish you could have. Not with the one you're waiting for. But with the one you've got. With the marriage that you have. And the parents that you have. And the family that you have. And the job that you have. And the church that you have. The paycheck that you have. And the car that you have. The shape that you have. The hair color that you have. Whatever category you need to run into right now. God wants you to be all in. All in. God, I didn't get somebody else's life. No, you didn't. You didn't. You could have got something worse. You could have got something better. But you got the one God assigned to you. I love the thought that the God of the universe gave thought to me and assigned anything. Should not even notice me. Shouldn't know my name. Shouldn't care care quite often and yet he insistently cares for me I love the fact that God has refused to let me have the life that I would have created for myself and I know that makes sense and all the really bad things I can think of I would have done but there's some quote good things that maybe I would have done that would have derailed my life in the worst of ways And I love the fact that there's a God who assigned something different to me than that. So here's the advice of the Apostle Paul. Here's the opportunity you and I have to be all in. God, I'm all in. That takes guts, doesn't it? 
Because some of us live our lives as close to the exit door as possible, trying to make sure in our own soul we're going to be okay because we're telling ourselves, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. Any day I'm getting out of here. And we live with the hope that I'm going to get out of here. Instead of turning to the life and say, God, I want to lead the life that you have assigned me. I want to be fully here. I want to live for your glory. Whether it's an easy day or a hard day. Whether it's got an end in sight or it's going to go on for as far as I can see. God, I'm all in. I'm trusting you. That's a gutsy prayer. But I think it makes sense for a bunch of us to pray. So let's just, let's just lift our hearts to God. You got your own words. Talk to God. Talk to God. Tell him. Voice to him. Talk to him about where you are right now. Where you can understand what was said this morning and what, how you need to respond. How you want to respond. Got to pray for faith in our hearts this morning. Faith that overthrows fears. Lord, that returns us back to that moment when we came to a place with you where we said, God, you could have it all. And we meant it at one level then differently than we do now. But God, we're back in that place again to say, God, yes, you can have it all. You have purposes that you want to see fulfilled. You have a plan for my life. You have dreamed dreams for me as insignificant as I am. Lord, you are at work. You have surrounded me with purposes to bring glory to your name, to bring life into the death of this world, to bring light into darkness, to bring joy into the sadness of so many. Oh God, would you unleash that in our midst, God? Would you give us hearts to live the life that you have assigned for us?